0: Next on Flyover from NPR News, what happens if you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you still can't reach the American dream? I'm Carrie Miller. It is fundamentally American, the belief that working hard is all it takes to get ahead. But as the wealth gap widens, does it mean that the people who aren't getting ahead somehow deserve to struggle? We'll start in Detroit, where a middle class once thrived, and now opportunities are hard to come by.
1: And if you think of yourself as, as hardworking and a stick to kind of person, you know, you're going to wonder, where's my opportunity to just work hard? And, and why should I have to wait for somebody to, to create one? Is hard work enough in your corner of America? Call one
0: 8 fly over one to join the conversation after this news. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from NPR News in St. Paul, Minnesota, a show about who we are in turbulent times. Each week, we examine the idea of American identity. You can find all of our shows on our Flyover podcast. Just search iTunes. This week, it's up by the bootstraps. Who would we be without the ideal of meritocracy? It's that essential American conviction that if you grind it out, you work hard— you use your talent and skill and ingenuity and maybe a little luck, you can make it. But what happens when the romance of that ideal meets an increasingly unequal reality? But here's the thing that this show is really about. Even with all of this evidence of rising inequality, are we a people who believe that if you're low-income, undereducated, struggling, well, somehow you just didn't follow the rules And you deserve somehow to struggle. That's what we're talking about. And as we begin, I'd like you to think about where your own experience fits into this and where your perceptions fit in, too. Do you feel less than in your community because you struggle to pay the mortgage or the bills, because you've needed some help at some point? Are we a people who think fellow Americans are poor because they screwed up somehow? They didn't follow the rules. Does that resonate with you? So I'd like you to think about that as we begin our conversation and join me at one eight three fly over one That's 1-833-596-8371. Talk to me about it on Twitter. I'm at Carrie K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R and use the hashtag FlyOver Radio. We begin at WDET in Detroit, Michigan, with journalist Stephen Henderson. He's the host of Detroit Today. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial writer for the Detroit Free Press. And Stephen, welcome. It's good to have you on the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I want to get at this tension between this American value of meritocracy and an economic environment that really challenges that. And I have a sense that there are parts of Detroit where you can see that tension every day. Is that true?
2: I I think that's absolutely fair to say about our community. Uh, There's a lot to unpack around what you're talking about there. Um, First, this idea of meritocracy and the idea that in America, we allow people to get to a better station in life by working hard. Of course, that's a fairly unusual concept on the planet. Most countries don't have that expectation sort Mm -hmm. of baked into their into their essence we do here but we also have uh, i think a countervailing dynamic that has been with us from the beginning which is that america hasn't been uh, a meritocracy for a lot of people Um, and i think in detroit you can see all of those things at work you have an industry that grew up here in the last century that allowed all kinds of people to earn what we would call a middle-class wage, have a middle-class life, own a house, own a car, maybe own a boat and a cottage, send your kids off to college uh, as well. Uh, that that has eroded, eroded uh, badly in the last 50 years uh, in a way that would, I think, stun most people if they came here and looked at, uh, what people's lives are like, what uh, what opportunity looks like here. Uh, and that goes across city and suburb. It goes across black and white. It cuts across uh, rich and poor. And it, I think it's fair to say that it defines the challenges that we have here uh, in Detroit moving into the 21st century.
0: You know, Stephen, I, I think of public education as a really revealing place to... Observe this in a lot of cities and a lot of smaller towns in the country, including in Detroit. I mean, you have kids who are coming out of, you know, consistently underfunded, underperforming public schools, and they are supposed to compete with students who come out of well funded and overachieving schools. And I think, though, we are quick to point at, I don't know, the parenting. You know, in some of those in some of those populations in the underfunded schools and say, you're just not doing something right. You are on the wrong side of the achievement gap. And there's a reason for that. And it's not only economic. You think that's right?
2: Uh, I think that a lot of people see it that way, no question. And I think there's some truth to the idea that it's not just economic. I, I might put a different spin on it. I would say that race has an awful lot to do with it as well. I mean, all of the kids that we're talking about uh, in the Detroit public schools, for all practical purposes, are African-Americans. And uh, they are where they are. They are in families and circumstances uh, that they are in in large part because they are african American uh, th- th- there's no question that that the the economic boom that carried this city to the forefront of of uh, of this nation in the last century left a lot of people behind because they were african American. Right. I mean this is a this is a city in a, a state that has a very rich history of overt and uh, subtle discrimination some of that still uh, exists today even um, you know uh, the the idea that people are responsible for their own fortunes I think is another very American
0: concept it is uh, I mean and, it's it's the essence of up by the bootstraps right? right it's that core individuality that we prize so much about the American myth
2: right right but but is that fair? Uh, to, to sort of foist upon people who have been told for centuries that they're not fully American? Is it fair to foist that upon people who in this very city faced incredible housing discrimination, job discrimination, uh, employment discrimination, all kinds of things uh, for, for many decades? Um, you know, I think when we look at Detroit and Detroiters and where they are, it, it, you're not really looking at the full picture if you're not accounting for those things that we've done historically to make sure that Detroit looks and feels really the way that it does.
0: Let me grab a call from Hannah in Wisconsin. Dells for you, Stephen. Hey, Hannah. Hi. Good to have your call. Hi. Thank you. Tell me how you're thinking about this.
3: Uh, um, I was just going to say that um, uh, I agree with a lot of what people are saying. Um, But to oversimplify and to say, you know, we've mentioned before the pulling up by your bootstraps, that whole concept that if you work for it, you're going to be able to get it, I think is just completely, it's a good, I mean, outlook to have, but I think realistically and economically and the system that we have set up in America, it's just not feasible. And I think that a lot of people, particularly in older generations that might have had different experiences where they could go to college for cheaper, get a house easier Um, have a family easier and just be able to do all these things, I feel like they have a different view on how success can be made.
0: So you I mean, Hannah, it sounds like you see a generational divide on this, on the perception of this. Is that right? Yeah.
3: I I don't want to say for 100% that there's a generational divide because to say so would be inaccurate. I think that just in my own statistical like in my own experiences and from what I've heard from the media and from other sources um, it's just that typically I think that the older generation has had an easier time I'm not to say that necessarily because you're a part of an older generation that you think a certain way about um, economic policies or um, or if you're younger that means you're liberal or you're older that means you're conservative because I know it doesn't but I, I do tend to see that trend a little bit yeah. Uh, there was a really interesting um talk that one of my professors gave um i can't remember the name of them but they had a classroom and they had a, a trash bin at the front of the classroom and they said everyone take your piece of paper crumple it and throw it into the trash can mm-hmm. and the people up front had no problem doing it and some people from the back got it but they had a little bit harder time <laughs> doing it interesting and the point was <laughs> that um if it's it's Possible for the people in the back to get it in the trash can. It's possible if they have good aim, if they try really hard. I mean, it's not impossible, but there's a certain amount of privilege that comes to sitting in the front seat.
0: There's a re- that That is an excellent experiment. Stephen, mm. what do you hear in that from Hannah? Yeah.
2: I mean, one of the things I hear in it is is this angst that I think exists in a way today that it didn't before. And this gets to her generational, uh, I guess, view of this, which is that uh, black, white, or whatever today in a city like Detroit, it is a lot harder to maintain the standard of living that you might have had before or to get to a better standard of living uh, than it was t- 20 or 30 and certainly much harder than it was 50 or 60 years ago. Now, why, why is that true? Uh, the, there are a lot of things that we've done to change the way that uh, that opportunity looks in the society in that time. One of them is deindustrialization, right? This is a nation that has chased the idea of technology uh, taking root here, and that jobs like the ones we had here and in Detroit, uh, where people did manual labor and made good, a good wage doing it, those have gone overseas. Uh, the, the The slowdown of of manufacturing uh, is also something that's really hurt us here in Detroit. The idea that uh, that we make things. That we have made things in Detroit for three centuries. Before we made cars, we made stoves. Uh, before we made stoves, uh, we made furs out of uh, out of animals uh, that, that they trapped around here. I mean, it's just part of our DNA. It's a lot harder to get a good job making things today that would pay you in the in the way that the auto industry used to. Uh, and then of course it's you know the, the sort of cannibalization of our urban cores. uh, uh, More than any other city that I know, Detroit suffers from this exodus of people out of the urban core into the suburbs. All of those things combine to make it a lot tougher today than it used to be.
0: Stephen Henderson is with us. He's going to, to continue with this conversation. This is Flyover Radio. We're calling this discussion up by the bootstraps. This idea that with all of this evidence of rising inequality, we still have this fierce kind of individualistic expectation That uh, you can pull yourself up and you are what you make of yourself and that everybody is responsible for their own success. And we're asking, is that an outdated idea in the kind of economic reality we're in? And here's the other thing we're getting to. Do we judge people's moral character by their bank accounts? So Stephen Henderson continues with us. Uh, Linda Torado is going to join us. I want to hear from you. Do you feel less than in your community? Do you feel judged? Because you struggle to pay the mortgage or the bills, 1 83 Flyover 1. That's 1 Program it into your phone. Reach me on Twitter. I'm at K E R R I M P R. Carrie M P R. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio. I want to hear from you. I know not every public radio station can play our program live, but we do want to hear from you. Join this conversation on Twitter, use the hashtag #flyoverradio or share your experience on our live blog at flyoverradio.org or leave us a message at 1-83-flyover1. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover from NPR News, a show about who we are in turbulent times. We're talking about where the American ethic of meritocracy, this this individualistic up-by-the-bootstraps ideal, meets the reality of economic inequality. And here's the question that I'm asking, and I hope you'll think about particularly if you've just joined the conversation. Do you feel less than in your community because... You've struggled at times to pay the rent or pay the bills because you've needed help at some point. Is there a streak of our American meritocracy that believes if you don't have a lot, somehow you've screwed up? You feel judged in some ways morally, judged with your character. So that's what we're talking about today. Love to hear from you. 183 Fly Over One. It's one eight three three five nine six eighty three seventy one. Or you can reach me on Twitter. It's at Carrie K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R use the Hashtag Flyover Radio. Stephen Henderson continues with us. He's the host of Detroit Today at WDET, and Linda Tirado is with us. She's the author of Hand to Mouth: Living in Bootstrap America, and she's with us today from St. Louis, Missouri. And Linda, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Hey, Carrie, how you doing? I- I'm doing well. I want to come back to what I used to think of as the American sure thing. You graduated from high school. You either went to college or you employed a a skill, and you made enough money to be economically mobile. And it felt like that was the economic contract for Americans. Now, I know, as Stephen has said, you know, times have changed. We've chased technology. Manufacturing jobs have left. But this has left a lot of people feeling like that contract has been broken. And I think in a lot of the communities that you visit.
1: Is that right? Um, yeah. And in most of the communities I've ever lived in as well um when you think about it the minimum wage peaked in 1968 and through the early 70s you could still on minimum wage pay for a university degree uh so so this this kind of flattening out of the american dream and this inaccessibility of of that basic contract of work hard be able to live a reasonable life Um, has been fairly recent. And one of the things we have to keep in mind is when we're looking at the unemployment rate, and we're celebrating the jobs numbers is to think about how many people are working near minimum wage, where they're not making enough to break through the poverty line, but they are in full time employment. And it's happening all over the country, where if you're lucky enough to find a job, it's not going to be Um, quite as well-paying as you need it to be to to maintain a comfortable standard.
0: Let me grab a call here from, we're hearing from a lot of people in Wisconsin today, and that's great, from Laura in Madison, Wisconsin. Laura, you say you're a bootstraps person. How so? What's your story?
4: (laughs) Um, Well, I actually grew up in Inkster, just outside Detroit. Uh Um, My mom was single parent, seven kids. Um, But, like, I graduated in 76 so um, from high school. So at that time, there was the Neighborhood Youth Corps program, um, which was part of the War on Poverty programs. Mm-hmm. So my brothers and I, that was our first job. We got paid minimum wage as high schoolers. So we got to support ourselves and bring fam- um, money to the family. Um, my mom was a CETA worker, and I uh, got full ride... Um, scholarship. And I wasn't a great student. So it was like straight up, you know, college grants um, to attend uh, four years of college. Um, And then after I graduated from college, you know, I worked for 10 years. And because of my poverty background, (laughs) I got a full ride scholarship um, to University of Chicago for social work school. So I think people look at me and say, well, she did it. But I think the myth is that people can do it without help like that. The other thing I had was a teacher who, like, just rode me endlessly about, (laughs) where are you going to college? You're going to college. Where are you going to college? And without that, you know, I would not have been a bootstraps person.
0: Uh Really good to have your call. um, Yeah, thank you. Linda, what do you hear in Laura's story?
1: I mean I think that anybody who comes out of a low-income background or of a poverty background is automatically going to fall into one of two camps. Either you hear people saying, oh, I did this myself or they think, oh, I was very lucky and I had a lot of help and I worked hard and I was smart. Um, And and she clearly falls into that latter camp as do I. I. I have a career only because I was lucky that one time. Um, because the right people saw a thing that I did and decided that I should be a writer. I worked at Burger King before that. So it wasn't that I wasn't a hard worker. I wasn't capable of doing something else. It was that there wasn't that opportunity available. And and so without those opportunities, you're never going to be able to get out of it.
0: You know, Stephen, I, I was reading recently about the uh, the hurricanes and the prosperity Mm-hmm. gospel and and I don't, I don't want to spend the whole show talking about I mean that could be its a whole show in and of itself <laughs> but I I do think there's an element of this here and and this is where you combine this religious teaching that mixes the idea that if you are faithful God will bless you with financial success and in some ways I think that's the essence of tying in financial ex- success with kind of the essence of character, sure. right, making a moral judgment around this, and this came up during uh you know the the hurricane in Hurricane Harvey in Houston, where mm-hmm. some churches responded and others didn't, and some of this might have been driving that,
2: yeah, uh, we actually had a show about that here in in Detroit where we talked about the difference between this idea of. Uh, the, the the gospel of prosperity and the gospel of faith what does what does your faith require you to do and not just in moments of crisis or or disaster but what does your faith require you to do all the time? I happen to be a product of Jesuit education here in the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. And the Jesuits, of course, are, are, are very clear on that question that it's our lives. It's our entire lives and the way we structure them and the choices we make that demonstrate what we believe and that we, we, we dedicate ourselves to service to some extent <clears throat> and don't pass judgment on those who don't have. But there are an awful lot of faith. Uh, that 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 preach that it's more about the individual and and as you say this traces back an awful long way in this country right uh, it reaches deep into our roots right. this sort of individualism that drives Americanism uh, genuinely or falsely and I think there there are instances of both but uh, this idea that we are all sort of responsible for ourselves to some degree uh, it it becomes problematic I think when you when you think about the other circumstances the other forces that act on people's lives
0: to the phones to Natasha in Durham North Carolina hey Natasha glad you caught the show there in North Carolina what are you thinking about hi
5: um thanks for taking my call sure I just wanted to speak to your question about if it's an outdated notion, and I think it very much is. And I also call with the perspective of uh, being Canadian. I've lived in the U.S. for about 10 years now, but I lived in Canada for the first 25 years of my life. And I think I think that this culture in America is extremely unique. I, I don't know of any other developed country that has this kind of a culture around meritocracy because, you know, you can become rich in other countries as well. It's not just America. Um, but I feel like there is a higher entrepreneurial culture here, and I think that meritocracy and that deep-rooted American sensibility has part of is part of the reason for that entrepreneurialism. But I also think the cost that regular Americans pay for that is incredibly higher than the benefit of a few successful entrepreneurs, and that it's just crazy that regular people, you know, can't can't live on minimum wage, working 40 hours or even, quite frankly, 80 hours a week anymore. Um, so I think it's very outdated.
0: I think that's an interesting thing that you you just said, Natasha, about how we we cherish this idea at the center of American culture. Again, that that it's individualism, and that's that's why we are the successful people we are in the world today. And yet, we pay the cost for that, which is something that I don't think we talk about very often.
5: Yeah, the cost is, is in my opinion, is is just far greater than the benefit. To those who manage to make it um, to you know becoming multimillionaires, just the number of people living in squalor who are working like crazy is just not not acceptable. At least in my opinion,
0: right? And, and and Natasha, thanks for the call. And Linda, that that's that's the thing that was kind of in the back of my mind is you hear this in political campaigns: play by the rules, work hard, and you'll get ahead. We're absolutely in an economic environment for a lot of the reasons that we've we've talked about. Uh, So far with you and Stephen, where you you are pushing back so hard, playing by the rules, but being pushed back so hard by the realities of of our economic situation that it's almost impossible to have the uh, to observe the rules and make it in, in some places.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we live in a society that pays people so little that they might be down to pennies in their bank accounts. And then we charge them for having a low balance, throw them into overdraft, charge them another 36 bucks a day for their overdraft. And then we ask them why they're not saving any money. So when that's the society you live in and those are the expectations – it is impossible to get out of those holes because as soon as you get back to okay something else is going to pop up most of america something like half of america doesn't have three, you know even a month's savings in their savings account right now and that's going to include your middle class people so when you're talking about the poor when you're talking about the disenfranchised when you're talking about people who are working for 2 dollars and 13 cents an hour plus tips which is supposed to be topped off to 750 but sometimes isn't, you know, those people are not going to be able to make it in a society that increasingly nickels and dimes people. In in a, a thing I noted, um, I live in Ohio, um, and I don't drive up the eastern seaboard very frequently, but I had to drive from Pennsylvania up north. And I noted that I paid something like $32 or $28 to cross Pennsylvania. Yeah, the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Right. And if I've been on... A, <laughs> A road trip um, for work or for a family funeral or for my once-in-a-lifetime trip to New York City or something for a honeymoon, I wouldn't have budgeted an extra 60 bucks for tolls. Mm. So these little hidden costs are built in and keep people trapped because even if you think you have enough money, you start to think, no, maybe I don't because you've gone out and and been – surprised by $80 worth of tolls and things that that middle-class people know that, you know, folk that don't make enough money don't have access to. So there's that. But there's also this idea of meritocracy and – we have to remember that we started out as an individualistic society with like manifest destiny of go and take this land. And if you're willing to work hard physically, you will survive and maybe even become prosperous. You know, let's not talk about slavery. Let's not talk about whose land it was or anything like that. But manifest destiny, go and do. Just be hardworking. And we've never really gotten over the idea that that is no longer the American experience, that an average American American, can't just walk out the door with a you know reasonable amount of education and get a good job if he's willing to work hard. We cling to that notion because it's easier than admitting that we are systematically disenfranchising millions of people and then asking them to account for our decision to do that. Anne
0: says on Twitter, I grew up working class in Detroit, Stephen, where you are in mm-hmm. the 1970s and 80s. She says, our family was able to reach middle class, but I will say we were not welcome in our suburban urban neighborhood at first, looked down upon, and we're white. If you've just joined this conversation, wherever you are in the country, I'd like to hear from you about whether you're in a community where you feel somehow judged less than because you've struggled at times to pay the mortgage or pay the rent or pay your bills. Maybe you've needed help. And this is where this streak of American meritocracy kind of meets the reality of what it is to live in a in a landscape of a lot of economic inequality. So if you've experienced that, we're taking your calls, we'll try to open some phone lines here. If you get a busy signal, reach me on Twitter. It's at Carrie K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag flyover radio. And when we've got open lines, I want to hear from you wherever you are. If you're on the east, if you're in the mountain west, we've got stations throughout the country, and it's great to get some geographic diversity in these conversations, too. 183 flyover one and uh, our live blog, flyoverradio.org. Okay, to the phones to Jasmine in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Jasmine, thanks so much for waiting. Interested to hear what you have to say. Um, Jessica? I'm sorry. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Go right ahead. Well, I was I called earlier.
6: Hang on. Just. I apologize. Give me just one moment. Um, I called last week regarding the, the conversation. And I think in my experience from small town, South Dakota, middle class upbringing, mm-hmm. Christian, white, the point of reference is so small they don't understand. Like I had the ability to move away and get a little bit bigger grasp on what's going on in the nation. Uh And I have friends that have never left this state. And so the poorest family that they may have known was, you know, maybe that one single woman that had three children that she was maybe the only person they knew on food stamps and they would drop clothes off at their doorstep Mm -hmm. and it was a community you know we're taking care of people but look look how good she's doing they don't understand that those opportunities aren't available everywhere there is a disconnect between that rural suburban christian white middle class america versus an urban upbringing that people just don't understand unless they've
0: been into it. I'm so glad you called, Jessica, because this is such a great point, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Up by the bootstraps means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? Although I think we all share the, you know, we get warm... Uh, with the idea of the of the mythology of it, but it looks pretty different in different parts of the country.
2: Sure, it does. And, uh, you know, I, this is somewhat cliche, but, you know, if you don't have boots to begin with, uh, the straps don't matter much, do they? <laughs> That's um, right. uh, you know, one of the things that, that struck me about the caller's point here is this idea of being stuck which which uh, I think we, we associate with rural parts of the country and rural poverty right I, I spent my early career in Eastern Kentucky in Appalachia where the the geography uh, along with lots of other things traps people in in poverty. you can you literally cannot get to something better but uh, now that I'm home in Detroit, uh, I'm noticing that take hold here in very similar ways. I've been working on a project in the neighborhood where I was born here in Detroit on the west side, uh, a place that's pretty much been forgotten, uh, to, 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 to be honest. And there are many people on that block who never leave that block, right? Uh, Even though this is the Motor City, 30% of the people in the city don't have a car. Uh, We don't have a good mass transit system because we didn't invest in it. And so if you're poor and you live in a poor neighborhood in Detroit, increasingly that neighborhood or maybe that block is your entire world. And the idea even of getting to something better, of going to a, a better school, uh, by traveling across the city or getting to a job that's not in your neighborhood is is impossible and so that's that that gets back to this idea that if you don't have the boots the straps don't matter. Uh, these are increasingly similar lines in both rural and urban America.
0: Stephen, I've been reading this series that you've been writing about the West Side, where you're, where the Henderson family home is, and I'll mm-hmm. come back to you on that because I, I think this really applies to what we're talking about. You're listening to Fly Over Stephen Henderson with us from WDET in Detroit, and Linda Tirada with us, the author of Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America. This is a show where are asking what does up by the bootstraps really mean right now in an economic reality that is so different than our parents and our grandparents grew up on i'd like to hear from you 183 flyover 1 If you've missed some of our program, you can find it on our website, flyoverradio.org. Next week, we're focusing on the politics of white resentment. It's an important, if uncomfortable, conversation to have. Listen to that right here next week. We'll be back with more on Bootstrap America in a minute. You're listening to Flyover from MPR News. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Flyover from m p r News in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a show about who we are in turbulent times. And right back to the conversation now, into the phones to Juan, listening in North Carolina. Juan, you also describe yourself as an up by the bootstraps kind of guy. What does that mean?
7: Well, I, I'm a legitimately one of those kids that grew up uh originally without boots i'm a first generation immigrant my uh, family came over here from south america mm-hmm. um and we were very poor my dad didn't graduate high school um my mom uh didn't work uh my dad was the sole provider for the household and he did what he uh what he could uh on sales and and did the best he could for us but uh, financially is it, it was a very um modest upbringing uh, but the one thing, the two things, um, that he really focused, uh, both him and my mother were education and hard work. Uh, and the focus, regardless of the resources was, um, to always look for a way to get, to, to open up the opportunities for us to, um, obtain, uh, and reach our goals. Uh, and my sister, um, she became an attorney, uh, at one point was a judge and, and now, uh, is a partner in a firm and my brother studied electrical engineering. I studied law as well. And uh, I'm a practicing attorney and also uh, joined the military and became an officer in the military. And none of that um, would have been possible, I think without that guidance and that drive uh, and push from my parents. And I think as a attorney and working in the criminal um, defense um, world, Mm -hmm. I, 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 deal with a lot of folks that, that find themselves in cycles of, um, poverty and obviously uh criminal um charges and i think one of the biggest factors that comes into play with with it is the lack of guidance and the lack of um direction um in those in those communities where um parents are just not don't they themselves don't haven't had the opportunities or haven't been able to to take advantage of opportunities and then uh the kids grow up uh without those opportunities as well uh and without somebody Telling them, uh, hey, there are options. You just have to um, look for them, and when they come, you have to take advantage of them.
0: Yeah, Juan, I, you're actually hitting on something that we talked about uh, towards the beginning of the hour, Linda. I, I'm curious about what you what you hear in that because I was saying to Stephen, you know, you get students that come out of, as in Detroit and many other cities, underfunded and underadvantaged schools, and then they're out there to compete one on one with students who come out of well funded schools. Um, it, sometimes I think it's it's out of the control of the people in the community, but but fit that with what Juan is saying.
1: Well, there's that of, of just a different level of education offered, but then there's also um, the social norms. So a thing that will happen um, i hear a lot from people that are low income and they go to they get into a very good school is they show up and they don't know how to network they don't understand how mentoring works mm-hmm. they don't understand they're not legacies right and there's all these intricate social norms and 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 usual useful social habits that that people have to get ahead in a career and you have to learn all of that from scratch and not just the subject matter at that university like you actually have to learn how to switch classes. So um, to make that a little more concrete, I, I travel a lot now and I give lectures and I am, I'm a traveling journalist. Uh, and for about the first year that I was traveling, it had never occurred to me that my food would be reimbursable, that that would be included in, in the expectation that people would pay me and cover my, my food along with my lodging. So I basically ate at McDonald's for six months, not knowing what an expense account was or how I might have one. Because nobody had sat me down to explain this is how this business works. And you can run a business more efficiently. You can get into a career. You can get into, you know, kind of that next step on whatever ladder it is you're trying to climb if you understand what it is you're stepping into. But for people who have been raised by folks that, you know, never were taught those things themselves, a parent can push for a child to read and for a child to love learning, and a parent can put them into whatever classes they can find and do everything for them. But if they can't teach them how to build that network that's going to get them through law school and that kid isn't naturally going to pick it up, then, you know, what shot is that kid going to have at at fitting in and and really building that thing that we all kind of – picture and dream of, of that stability and that comfort and that career. Linda, what part of Ohio do you live in? I live in uh, the rural southeast part. I okay. basically live in the woods across from West Virginia.
0: Okay, that's right. Uh, taking a call now from Donnie in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Donnie, hi. Thanks for waiting. Hi, how are hi. you? How, how does this apply well, to your life experience?
7: Um, well, I'm 25 now, and I was always taught to pull myself up by, by the bootstraps and that I would always make it. Um, my Both my grandparents and my parents are both upper middle class. They're uh, successful government contractors. So I was surrounded by people who always were, you know, that pinnacle of uh, success. Mm-hmm. So I always believed that if I just worked hard, um, I would make it. And here I am. Uh... You know, not making minimum wage, but, you know, barely scratching by. And then I work as hard as I can at all the jobs that I've had. And it's just sometimes you just have to get so lucky. And it's not as easy as just working hard.
0: Hey, I'm really glad you called, Donnie, because, to Stephen, I- I've been reading some research from Aaron Godfrey out of NYU, who said, who essentially looks at how... Economic inequality is perceived by people at the top, right? People Mm -hmm. who don't really have to worry about the economic inequality. And this goes right to what Donnie was saying. She told The Atlantic, if you're in an advantaged position in society, believing the system is fair and that everyone could just get ahead if they just tried hard enough doesn't create any conflict for you. Sure, You can feel good about how you made it. Donnie's like, that's what I thought until I... Had to work three jobs to, to pay the bills.
2: Yeah, I mean there there is this uh, in in our society this sort of reinforcing dynamic uh, about a narrative I should say about about hard work hard work pays off. Uh, And people for whom hard work or any number of other things, uh, inheritance, luck, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that make people successful, but they all would point to, they'd say, well, I worked hard. I worked hard to get here. And if you do, uh, you will too. There is something about that that is sort of girding that system and, and preventing people from trying to change it, right? Uh, from Preventing people from on the bottom from saying, this doesn't work for me, it didn't work for me and we need something different. If you're at the top, that sounds like a threat. That sounds like something that might take away from you. Uh, and again, let's apply the lens of race to this. Imagine Imagine working hard your whole life and seeing uh, the, seeing things not pay off in the same way as they did for other people, the way they did for you, because there is still uh, quite a, a, a virulent strain of racial discrimination that runs through the institutions in our society. Uh, at, at some point, you start you start believing it's all a con, that it's all a game, and and you stop working at it because you know that it won't pay off, Uh, then, of course, the people at the top look and say, well, look at all these lazy people who won't do what I did. And so the the system just sort of feeds on itself over and over in that way. And there never is that point of disruption where people say, hey, this doesn't work for so many people that we have to think of an alternative.
0: You know, what you've just said, Stephen, really applies to next week's uh, conversation, which is about white resentment. And one of the things I want to talk about is this idea of the zero sum gain, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So if they get that, I'm going to have to lose some. Lose? Of that's that's right. right. And and I don't know why that had, that seems to have taken hold. And there's a, maybe that's human nature. I don't know. There seems to be a, a um, convinced part of American society that believe that
2: yeah well well, part of it is uh, is guilt right i mean it, it, there there 's an accusatory nature to the idea that some people have gotten ahead while other people have not, and that that race is the is the arbiter of of those two sides of the equation i think in in many instances, those who have have been successful feel accused uh, by, by African-Americans or even uh, poor whites who say the system wasn't fair for me. And so that, I think, is, is probably the ultimate sort of root of that defensiveness, right, and that zero-sum game that says, if I give up uh, anything here uh i i'm gonna have to to, to do to do worse than right. i'm than i have done so far
0: that that's next week's uh flyover conversation by the way we're going to talk about white resentment uh yes i i realize it's going to be a sensitive conversation that's what flyover is actually all about as we talk about american identity to the phones here to adriana in minneapolis adriana welcome good to have your call oh thank you Hi. for taking my call sure what are you thinking about
8: so, I am a mother of seven, and um we have a large family, and I think that, um as I've grown up my my grandparents were two family homes had eleven children, but they owned their home. Mm. They worked, they worked hard um my mom married two, two two parent home um ended up getting divorced, but I've seen my stepfather work hard, you know they they have degrees um when it comes to me, I'm in college, I graduated already. But there was a an extreme disconnect when I was younger to now about what the American dream can even be for you. Um, as African-American, um, it's not a narrative of owning a home and having a brand new car and owning, um, a lawnmower and all these things. Um, it's, I, I think my narrative was like, can I have a happy warm household with wonderful children and hopefully own my house. Um, so as I got married, um, the housing bubble hit and houses hit super low. So most of my friends who are married or together, they end up purchasing homes. And now ten years later it's not happening as much because housing has went so far up. So right. we accept right. You know, we, we accepted Section Eight because do I sit and struggle? and worry about being crammed in an apartment, trying to buy a home or buying a smaller home, or will I accept the government assistance? And I think a lot of people who either have a larger family or want to have a larger family, those are the things that are shown done now because you're um, the part of society that people are thinking, we're taking care of you. Um, We're going to give you housing. We're taking care of you. Or we're going to pay a portion of your rent or pay a portion of your school. We're taking care of you.
0: I, I think and so, Adriana, I think you've hit on something too that that was kind of motivating my question to the audience, which is if you have taken help, right, at some point in your life you needed help, and Linda, let me come back to you on this. I mean, are we a a culture that um how do I want to put that? Not not openly denigrates that because I think I, I think you hear a lot of the political debate about a handout, right? But there seems to be this element of you get this for a limited amount of time and then it's back to pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and you shouldn't need the help of your neighbors or the government.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's fundamentally insane on a couple of levels and let me tell you why. Firstly, there is no single citizen in the United States that has not taken money from the government to pay for their food bill or for their housing. Through subsidies, right, and in write-offs. Whether that a subsidy, right. if it comes in a tax write-off, or it comes in a check-up front, I don't care what it is. It comes out of the same federal budget going for the same purpose. So if you want to talk to me about Section 8, I'm going to need to see your tax returns. <laughs> and secondly... When we're talking about the kind of shame that we ascribe to people who are getting what we call public assistance, which is that very specific kind of of, of federal aid – Um, You know, we've got people like Paul Ryan who call it a comfortable hammock and who say that it breeds laziness. But I promise you, Paul Ryan has never been on welfare because I probably spent more time in the years that I was on and off welfare, that I was on and off public assistance. I was working most of the time, full time. I was married before I had children. My husband would work. He's a combat vet from Iraq with the Marine. All right. So we're not doing nothing here. And I would spend more time trying to get the paperwork filled out to jump through the hoops to prove that I had a job to the welfare system so I could get 50 bucks, you know, in food stamps than I probably did looking for a second job so that I wouldn't need the food stamps to begin with. The system is set up to trap people in it. And Paul Ryan's right about that, but he's wrong about what the trap is. The trap isn't it's so nice and comfortable and easy and people look at you and you have a great life. The trap is you spend so much time trying to subsist even though you're on this public assistance, that you don't have time to improve. He's ascribing the wrong motivation to the right thing. And to, for, for people to judge that um, is, is always a signal that they have not thought through what tax policy actually is or what currency actually is or, you know, for that matter, what public aid is. Because I guarantee you a bunch of very wealthy people or very comfortable people who are in areas right now that need a a lot of federal dollars are going to be understanding. And this happens after every natural disasters. You see people who were previously comfortable go, oh, my gosh, I didn't understand what those funds and those tax dollars were for. Maybe that is a really good program. And it's sad that sometimes it takes that, that kind of dramatic you know, level of, of awful horror for people to understand what the conversation needs to be in America, which is not should we be helping people, it's how should we effectively do so, so that there's a floor in the standard of living and nobody in in this wealthiest country in the world, has to live below it.
0: I want to make sure I can get Dustin in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in here. Hey, Dustin, thanks so much for waiting. Glad you did.
9: Hi, hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I just wanted to call. I want to say, my wife and I we're we're both from Southwest Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, we grew up there. It's the situation we grew up in. My wife's family squatted in their home in my wife was 18 um this is we grew up as poor as i could think and both of us decided there was no way we were going to live that way we didn't want to live that way we didn't want to raise a family that way and we had to get out and we did what we could to get out of detroit we took jobs wherever we could we lived in places that we couldn't we could barely afford but we pulled ourselves out and we live very comfortable lives now. We're upper to we're middle class to upper middle class. But we have so many friends that are still in Detroit who had the same opportunities we did. And they're like, No, there's no way I can ever get out.
0: Uh-huh. Dustin, can I also ask that as your wife's family and you all were I don't, getting out of Detroit and moving up the economic ladder, you were taking a little help where you could find it?
9: Oh, we did take help from where we could find it. It was uh, I take no shame in that. I tell people that you should never be ashamed if you need help. Get it.
0: Stephen, I've got a couple minutes left. Would you you take a minute and just reflect, particularly because Dustin was in Detroit?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I'm happy for Dustin and his his family. I mean, obviously, that's that's the American dream, right? That's the story that we have been telling ourselves for 241 years. Uh, is at the essence of of being a uh, part of this country and and it does happen i mean i think we should all take a moment and and recognize where it does happen at the same time uh, the the difference between Dustin and somebody who can't make it out is not just about that individual effort. There are really, really deeply baked in systemic issues that prevent people from getting from one place to another. And that's where our that's where most of our attention, I should say, should be.
0: Stephen, I'm really grateful you had you had time to join us today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Linda, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Absolutely. You as well. Linda Torado's book is called Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America. You can read Stephen Henderson's writing in the Detroit Free Press. He's also a host at WDET's Detroit Today with Stephen Henderson. If you got in on the end of this conversation, good news for you. It's all podcasted and you can find it on iTunes. Just search Flyover. You can also find us at flyoverradio.org and you can tweet me at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I. By MPR. Use the hashtag flyover radio. Back next week with a conversation about white resentment. I'll meet you here. Support for this program comes from Max's, a
7: locally-owned fine jewelry and specialty chocolate boutique located at the shops at
0: Excelsior and Grand in St. Louis Park and online at stylebymax.com. Programming is supported by Club Book, bringing authors to libraries throughout the Twin Cities area. Their current season continues September 19th with a talk by novelist Susan Elizabeth Phillips at the Stillwater Public Library. More at clubbook.org.
2: We'll get some top of the hour news in just a few moments. Then it's today's edition of All Things
0: Considered coming.